You've tuned in to a special edition of the Roundtable Podcast. 20 Minutes with Michael R. Underwood. Hello, literary alchemists. I'm Dave Robison. And I'm Brian Humphrey. And you're listening to a very special showcase episode of the Roundtable Podcast, 20 Minutes With. 20 Minutes With is a segment in which Dave and I have the great honor to share the microphone with some fabulously talented people. And today we have a veritable god of geekdom. (laughs) God of geekdom. An avatar of nerdiness. Yes, it is so awesome. So awesome. Brian, now, you know how I always deliver an astonishing chronological accounting of our guest host from birth to current day that leaves everyone stunned and a little uncomfortable comfortable, right? That's why I tune in, Dave. <laughs> well, thank you, sir. I'm so glad. <laughs> uh, well, I'm going to try something different. For this episode, I'm oh, gonna, no. Uh, no, really, I'm going to reverse it a little bit. And oh, I'm, actually, okay. I'm actually going to lead off with a summary of the most recent year in the life of our guest host. Mm. In 2012, our guest host signed with a literary agent, sold his first and second novels, Signed with a media agent for one of those novels. Sold the audio rights to Audible for both of these novels. Got the first novel published. Wrote the sequel to said novel. Got a new job as the North American sales and marketing manager for Angry Robot Books. Moved from Indiana to New York City for that job. And took his first trip to the UK also for that new job. Cue the stunned silence of the world in awe of the best year ever for a writer. Am I right? (laughs) Oh, God, yeah. (laughs) Who wouldn't want to have a year like that? So today I'd like to offer the seven easy steps to having the best year ever based on our guest host's life. One, have really geeky, nerdy parents. Now, apparently, our guest host saw Return of the Jedi before his first birthday. Now, assuming he didn't crawl to the theater himself and negotiate a trade for his Baba or Passy for a ticket, we have to assume that it was either mom and dad or a very cool aunt and uncle. Regardless, this is a prerequisite. Two. Play lots and lots of role-playing games. And then game master a bunch more. And and we're talking tabletop stuff here, where you have to create a world and then create an adventure and have to deal with player characters who have a mind of their own. Now, apparently, this is such a great training ground for writers that to this day, our guest host builds his stories in much the same way he used to build his adventures. Step three. Attend college, but do not, under any circumstances, pursue a degree that college actually offers. (laughs) Instead, make up your own degree that involves folklore, mythology, and East Asian studies, and then create a fictitious division of the university called the Individual Major Program. Now, yes, I know our guest host claims that this is a real institution at Indiana University, but you'd be amazed what you can do with a word processor and some official university letterhead. All right. Refer to this degree as a BA in creative mythology. 
Now, also as an undergrad, get adopted by a critique group of writers who are also members of your live action drama troupe. Step four, get a master's degree from the University of Oregon. But again, write your own curriculum that combines theater classes, film studies, and work with folklore. And at cocktail parties, you can refer to this ad hoc geek and gamer studies degree as a master's in folklore. So no one has a clue how much fun you're having. <laughs> now, step five, work as a fiction reader for Fantasy Magazine and as a writer for PopMatters.com as a DVD reviewer and essayist. Then, around 2007 or so, attend the Clarion West Writers Workshop, which will be a transformative experience for you and crank up your writing skills exponentially. Step six, another critical step. Start writing a novel, then take a break from it over Thanksgiving with your girlfriend. Now, this is apparently crucial because by now, you literally can't stop writing and your mind will conjure a completely new story idea for you. This idea will apparently be so awesome that you'll knock out 5,000 words on it before the tryptophan has worked its way out of your system. Step seven, finish the first draft and post a few chapters up on bookcountry.com. Got that, listeners? Bookcountry.com. Listen to the feedback, start making revisions, and then just wait. Soon, a guy from Pocket Books, in this case, Adam Wilson, will contact you with a request for the rest of the novel. And then apparently a week later, you'll have a contract. And then you can start the mad frothing scramble to find a literary agent. But don't stress about this too much. Apparently, you'll eventually get represented by Sarah Megabo of Nelson Literary, known in some circles as the Agent of Awesomeness. Now, along the way, study ballroom dancing and Argentine tango extensively. Develop an obsession for historical martial arts and do make sure that you reference the differences in styles in terms of hit dice of damage. Uh, present a paper at an academic symposium titled Holy Genre Trouble Batman, Batman as Pulp Vigilante Trapped in a Superhero World and actually get applause rather than being laughed off the stage. And lastly, be so incredibly awesome as to accept an invitation from a couple of podcast hipsters when they invite you to be a guest host on their podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, author of Geekomancy and the forthcoming sequel Celebromancy and practitioner of the rare magical discipline called Awesomancy, please welcome to the big chair at the round table, Mr. Michael R. Underwood. Mike, dude, thank you so much for taking time from your schedule and, and sharing some thoughts with us, man. This is awesome. Thank you. That was a phenomenal introduction. Thank you, guys. <laughs> I, I give to you the, the culturally appropriate slow clap that builds to a, a gigantic crescendo. Oh, that's... Wait, I don't think you've it. ever achieved that before. Dave. I know this is awesome, and and you know maybe we can actually lay in a soundbite underneath. That's fabulous, Mike. Were there any any errors in there? Anything that I misrepresented in any way, shape, or form? Well, I think you are you're some kind of technomancer yourself because you've uh, you've uncovered the uh, the retroactive uh, WordPress and. Uh, uh, <laughs> 
academic fraud to invent this individualized major program that you've uncovered as uh, <laughs> just to trick the dean of Indiana University. No, that that was just so brilliant a maneuver on your part, and I, I think I think writers need to be aware that uh, in some ways you have to chart your own course. So and you definitely embodied that ideal. So so let's let's not mince any words. Let's get down to it. I'm re- I'm ready to start my 20 minutes or so with Mike R. Underwood. All right, setting the timer. We're good to go. Um, Mike, one of the things that jumped out from that background is the is the notion, and you mentioned this in one of your interviews, that that the process that you use to write your that you use to develop your stories. Uh, uh, actually kind of mirrors your process you use for developing uh, uh, tabletop game adventures. And I wondered if you'd expand on that a little bit. What was it about the the gaming environment and the elements of a good adventure that translated so nicely into at least your particular process in developing a story? Well, a lot of the time when I'm doing writing, I will I will think about the world first. I try and I come up with a setting that is generative that will produce a lot of stories because I tend to uh, think of and work in series rather than standalones. So I want to do a whole bunch of world building and then get to build on it and steal from it for a long chunk of time. So when I was coming up with one of the concepts for a book that I that's currently on the desk of my editor, I started with what if you have a world where X and once I had the basic concept I tried to to fill out the setting so that all I had to do was push one domino and then 50 other things would happen where if you look away from the page you have the sense that the world is ongoing because that's the kind of setting I like to play in and run in when I was doing tabletop games where the characters feel like they're important and they're central to their own story but the, the world exists more, uh, more than just in relation to them, that if they turn the corner, there's a whole new thing where, thing, where people and actions and history was already, uh, was already going. And I feel like it's important to try and bring that reality to your writing where the character is of a certain time, of a certain age, they're in a context, they have their own worldview, and in gaming, I tried to build the world around the characters, even if the world existed beforehand, like Legend of the Five Rings or uh, the Deadlands RPG or any number of things. You, know, you start with the world, you bring in the characters, and then you adjust the world so that those characters, as they move through it, can intersect with history and kind of make those big ripples that because you've already placed other stones in the pond will interact and uh, become more and more complex. And then you get to reap those benefits back into the game and into your writing. That's outstanding. Now, Mike, do you still ref games from time to time? Um, I've done a little bit in the last couple of years. I try to convince other people to run because for me, the part of my brain that will do GMing or storytelling uh, for tabletop games is pretty much the same part of my brain that will produce new fiction. So I try to protect that that kind of part of my brain so I don't burn out. So and then I get to just be more, just be an actor and practice my my deep characterization and performance skills and let other people do the heavy lifting that I try to save for my novels. Outstanding. Outstanding. Very cool. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Um 
you you mentioned the the acting part, and when Dave was talking about your background and um, you know your your pseudo faux masters and bachelor's degrees, um, <clears throat> when I was studying to be a director, <laughs> pseudo faux. <laughs> no, these are legitimate well, degrees. Damn it, I, they're totally legitimate. They're totally. But, but I, I love I love how you did that. And and when I was studying to be a director, one of the best pieces of advice that I got was don't take classes on directing take classes on everything else and that kind it sounds like that's kind of where you were going you rather than just focusing writing 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 it's this whole world of all of these other things including theater and and everything else and how would you say that an education in what would be called creative mythology or folklore how has that informed or enhanced your your sense of storytelling in general well i think that when I was trying to build the creative mythology degree, I had I had just come out of a kind of a, a binge on the works of Joseph Campbell, uh, who kind of really popularized comparative mythology for the United States and kind of for a Western audience. Now he gets a lot of flack from from the Academy uh, for certain reasons, but the thing that was really potent and really spoke to me was finding the commonalities across cultures. And looking at origin myths or hero legends and taking them at the cultural level, you know, what does this say about what it means to be a hero, what people's obligations are to one another, and Mm -hmm. trying to create um, something of a schematic understanding of historical circumstance, technological level and trajectory, narratives used at certain times, and then how narratives are used to reinforce, question, and then push forward certain cultural ideas. And then trying to take that, uh, that kind of schematic procedural formula and understanding those formulae and then putting it into new settings or putting it into a contemporary setting where I can say, what kind of story is the one that will most, uh, most effectively engage people on a deep level in terms of talking about uh, alternative kinships where, okay, if I take a certain world that's a little bit different from ours and I use this understanding that I've created to try and speak new truths out of uh, new truths for old worlds and old ideas in a new setting. Yeah. Do you, do you find that using those kinds of, um, primitive uh, mythological archetypes that you're opening yourself up to a wider audience as well that may not typically be a part of your genre? Yeah, I think you know, if you're going to, to really old narratives, you're seeing people doing the first recorded uh, works uh, as performers, as writers, and as cultural critics. And I think that Going to that level, you know, if I'm doing something that riffs on the Iliad or the Odyssey or on the Epic of Gilgamesh or on, say, Shonagon's Pillow Book, uh, I get their audience as well as a contemporary science fiction fantasy audience. And I think that it's really important as people in the SF and F uh, and horror world to go back to some of the earliest narratives that we can see and that I see very clearly as really the, the antediluvian narratives that we are the descendants of. Because at every stage in history, and basically in the way that I see it, we've used narrative to understand our world and to, draw, uh, to, to shed light on things that we don't understand or that we think need to change in our world. And that 
seeing how that is done at each stage of history gives mm-hmm. me a lot more to play with and i can t- i can set something i can set my stories in a wide variety of areas because i grew up in a very particular historical and social and economic context but by engaging deeply with these uh, very old narratives i can get a much wider range of settings to play with and do so hopefully with a bit more authenticity than just only ever writing about my own life that's outstanding and this yeah. this, this yeah. is exactly why i love bringing authors who have studied so deeply and imbued themselves so so deeply in their craft uh, uh, as you were talking, Mike, it occurred to me that you know, the the origins of storytelling were largely oral. And we've seen, just in recent years, the sudden explosion of serialized audio fiction through podcasting and the, the rise and, and explosion of audible.com and acx.com. Is, is this a resurgence of, resurgence of the oral tradition? And, and is this something you think that uh, uh, authors might give heed to in more than just a, a nod or an alternative marketing method of getting their works out there? I think we're definitely seeing a resurgence of oral tradition. When the Internet started, everyone was, to my knowledge, everyone was assuming, oh, well, this is a great tex- uh, textual revolution, and we're going to be able to send information textually across borders, across time zones, really effectively. But as bandwidth has increased and as innovation has continued on the Internet, we're seeing visual communication, but we're also seeing oral communication with those podcasts and patio books and you know, selling audio rights to, to Geekomancy and Celebromancy was an, a super amazing extra thrill because when I'm writing, I try very much to make it a story that is engaging orally. And that's the next thing I'm doing, you know, doing revisions. And I try to do for each work when I can is to read it out loud and make sure that it sounds good. And I love to perform live so that I can tap into what I understand to be the oldest form of storytelling in the world. That's awesome. And we've heard so many times on the show, several authors have taken to using that, that audible reading of their work as a stage of their revision process. And, and by transforming that into something that is heard well as well as read well, that's, that's fabulous. We'll be right back with more of our conversation with Michael R. Underwood after this brief promotional break. The voyage will be dangerous. It may involve fights with temple ships, and it will almost certainly offend the sensibilities of the current administration of Major Major, as well as the priestess and her, um, what did you call them? Pet lizards. You had him at Dangerous. The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers, a novel of pirates and Panamandora. You made me sad, Gerard. Come back. Come back, and maybe I won't make so many things bleed. Written and narrated by Abigail Hilton. Book four out of the ashes. A Grishnard, a Foxling, a Leopon, a Leon, an Ocelon, and you, a half-breed who acts more Grishnard than he looks and brought a plague upon his last allies. A forbidden book. 
Wayne, for a smart person, you can be pretty stupid. I don't know anyone else like that. No one asked your opinion. A pirate prince. Polivar, what are you doing? An idea whose time has come. The Guild of the Cowrie Catchers. Find the story at cowriecatchers.com or subscribe in Podio Books, iTunes, or your favorite podcatcher. Silvio? Silvio? Let's go change the world. Now, let's get back to the conversation with Michael R. Underwood. I, I, I have all of these questions, but you keep saying things, Mike, that, that I want to explore more. <laughs> um, you, you said earlier that you think in terms of series. And we've heard many times on the show, especially with the guest writers that come on and present their story ideas, that, that they've conjured these, these stories in the context of a series. And could you expand a little bit on what it means to think in series? What is it that, that distinguishes a story as, you, as you're conjuring, as you're working through how it's going to express, that distinguishes it from a standalone story into a story that must be told in, in many forms or many iterations on down the road? Well, I think a lot of it comes down to the narratives that I absorbed and really uh, was fond of as a kid. Now, you got Star Wars, which is a series. I watched a lot of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And with a series, you have a really unparalleled ability to take a character and start them in, in one place, either weak or naive or young and undeveloped in skills or their ideas and understanding of the world. And with a series, you can draw a long arc and you can show what I think to be a more realistic uh, arc of character growth. You know, if you've got a hero who starts out as a schlub and doesn't know anything, and then by the end of one chunk of narrative, they're a total badass who knows everything about the world, that's not as interesting because all of that development and the fail, like the, the try-fail cycles, sure. will probably be truncated or glossed over. But I think okay. with a series, you can see a character change one decision at a time. And you, that's really the way that we learn and change as people. And I think it becomes more instructive or more illustrative for readers to be able to see someone go through their changes and development as a character step by step. I think the other big thing is that when I, a lot of the times I will think about a setting and that if the setting is generative itself, then there's more than just one story in the setting. Excellent. Yeah, I, I can totally see that because so much of the media that we're consuming these days is cyclical is presented as a series television movies i mean the notion of of a single movie without a sequel is, is practically unheard of anymore although some sequels should never ever be made um <laughs> but also television you know jumping into the middle of a series is is more and more difficult these days because the 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 writers and the storytellers that are driving the 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 concept are actually creating this overarching arc of, of tail that you can't just jump in the middle of, that you have to start from the beginning of. Yeah, I think we're seeing kind of a, a bit of a sea change back and forth, especially in television, between serial media, media and episodic media, where in a serial storytelling, there's 
kind of an accumulation of content and uh, a long arc of character. And for serial television, I think about Battlestar Galactica, I think about Lost. Right. And then you have, on the other end of the spectrum, you have Episodic, which is going to be your, um, you know, your formula TV shows, your procedurals, uh, NCIS, Castle. Uh, a lot of sitcoms are deeply episodic, where there isn't that barrier to entry. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And then taking that idea and thinking about my own work, um, I try to to know whether I'm writing something that's primarily episodic or primarily primarily serial. And in urban fantasy, we see a lot of series that are serial episodic, where you can take each you can take each book and read it on its own. But there is a greater accumulation of meaning, I think, sure. if you read them in order. Yeah. And that's what I'm trying to shoot for, where I'm not cutting myself off to new audiences by making each book uh, you know, build directly on the previous one so much so that you, you can't engage with book two or book three as your first narrative in the series. But I also don't want to throw away the status quo at the end of every episode and, like, and go, go back to, you know, okay, well, at the end of book one, it's just the same. And at the end of book two, it's just the same. Right. I want the character to change over time. Does that does that create an obstacle to that character change if you're trying to create a good solid ending for each one so that each one can be a standalone or do you think that that enhances it? I think it's a, a challenge and also an opportunity. Uh, when I was wrapping up uh, book two in the series, I was thinking a lot about kind of that serial versus episodic balance. And as I was writing, I was intending to have it be episodic but also building on what had come before. And my editors really helped me with that as well. I think you're going to have to make choices as you go on how much to lean on what's come before and how much you need to build and let each story be its own thing. And that's really going to be a balance that each writer needs to find. I try to focus on it on the character and that the character is a certain person and is in a certain part in their life when they start the story. And they are that person because of what has happened before. And as long as I make it clear who they are at the start of the story, I don't have to give as much of what has come before because I've painted a clear picture of who they are at the beginning of a, a narrative, and that will carry you through to the end of that narrative. Right. Excellent. Mike, I wanted to ask you, um, in, in reviewing uh, many of the interviews that you've given, inevitably the question arises, usually towards the end of the interview, what advice do you have for new writers? And I noticed that every time that question gets answered, you give a different answer, and which I think is very cool. Uh, it kind of tracks the arc of your own uh, exploration through, through the writing craft. So I, I wanted to kind of reverse the question. It's like, Mike... If you had to give advice to yourself for writing, what advice do you what, what what advice does Mike Underwood need right now at his stage in his developing craft as a writer? The thing that I've been trying to do with the second book in the series and as I'm moving forward is to always challenge myself in new ways and to keep on raising the bar for myself. I don't want to be the kind of writer who has one book that comes out and gets good reception, and then he re- rehashes the same thing forever. I have lots of different ideas, and I always want to be doing better in terms of characterization, or push myself in description, or write more complex character interactions. So when I 
get into a project, I'm now trying to set myself a new challenge that's a higher craft level challenge than anything I've done before with other projects. In the most recent book, I wanted to do more complex like, romance interactions, and I wanted to to step up my descriptions. And you achieved both, as I as I recall from the descriptions for for celebromancy. We, we don't actually have a love triangle; we have a love rhomboid. Is that correct? Uh, yes, it's a, a love rhombus. Rhombus. I, think I have it described <laughs> in the book, <laughs> which just sounds South American and 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 frothingly good. So awesome. <laughs> Very cool. And and you actually you have several other works that are uh, uh, currently in process and and evolution. Uh, are you are you applying that same setting yourself of a challenge for those as well? I've been trying to. Um, I worked on a beginnings to a few different projects uh, to get them out into the world and see what what sticks. And with one, I tried to do. I tried to push my my use of voice to a, a whole new level uh, and. Try and emulate and and follow suit with some you know great writers who just totally excel at voice like um, Jim Butcher or Chuck Wendig in his Miriam Black series. Mm-hmm. Um, the people who they write so compellingly that it feels like you're right there next to the character and that they're just they're talking to you and they're talking you through the whole story. Because I really like this, uh, especially films where they'll pause and then break the fourth wall and talk to the audience. Because I think that type of metafiction is really cool. And that you can get almost to that point with a certain style of first person. And that was a challenge I set for myself in one area. And I'm trying now, and after doing this podcast, we'll do so even more intently to try and always set myself a new challenge. And that also means that I'm never getting bored. I'm never getting complacent as a writer. Yes, absolutely. That's outstanding. You mentioned that for you, and I think this is really cool, that for you, it's, it's important for you to create a sense of world building so that the world goes on in the reader's mind after the story, that, it, that the world is a real place and it's continuing. And I, I just, I, I love that. How do you do that? How do you work that into a piece without massive info dumps or large blocks of description? I think that it's a question of writing in a kind of iceberg fashion where you only see a little bit of what's on the surface because for most of the time you're going to be with a character or with a handful of characters. And that as the author, I know a lot of what's happening underneath the surface so that I have a better sense of when things will will bubble up. And then when they bubble up, they come into the narrative and they get to be on the page. But when they're not on the page, I still know what's happening so that you know, later in a story, when you discover what's been going on, a reader who really likes to to read between the lines can see the places where I've done a little bit to to give a, a bit of foreshadowing or put a couple of clues on the page. They'll hopefully be able to put it together in a in a manner that they find satisfactory, uh, or at least I'll do my reveal in a way that doesn't seem inauthentic because I will have known what's going on the whole time, and I'm not suddenly on page 350 going, oh, let me change my mind about how this works. <laughs> Which would immediately get you pilloried and burned in effigy. Right. Well, right. and at, at least if you do that in a first draft, you can retcon your, your own work right. and build in everything that's necessary so that it, it pushes towards, it, that it has a trajectory towards that reveal. And that's something that's really cool about revision is that 
in a later draft, if you discover you have a big light bulb moment, you can actually build the narrative architecture that supports it so that it doesn't just come out of nowhere. And you've spoken at length about about cultivating revision as a skill. This this is apparently something that that has, I don't know, affected you deeply or or was a revelation that, that literally transformed how you write? Yeah, when I was probably in my late teens and early 20s, I would write a first draft and I would think it was really cool and then I would have to pull teeth to convince myself to go back to it <laughs> and to to engage with it in a new way. And I hadn't built the skill of looking at my work from a revision standpoint. I didn't know how to deconstruct my own work without taking all of the fun out of it. And I hadn't developed the ability to view revision as a way of telling the story better. And I, I can take this back to like telling jokes or doing a, uh, like a vocal performance, something. A revision, a second, third, or fourth draft, I'm now trying to think of as a new performance of the work. Okay. And that I can do a better job having done it a couple of times. You know, in the second draft, these things worked pretty well, but there wasn't a through line. Now I can go back and I can do the same thing better by developing that revision skill. And that was really only something that that crystallized and became an actual part of my craft probably in my uh, mid going into later 20s. I spent three years revising one project, and that was really how I learned how to revise. And that one didn't sell, but then the next one I did is what sold. That's that's an exceptional metaphor, the notion of, of yep. a second performance, because any theater geek can can appreciate the chance <laughs> to, to do a scene over again. I can do that better. Uh, and we and we actually thirst and hunger for that. So so that's a perfect way to think about that revision of story. That's great, gentlemen. I, I, I hate to say it, but but the clock just donned a, a, a T-shirt made of a patchwork of of game convention <laughs> T-shirts and <laughs> and elevated a lightsaber and then vanished in midair just right in front of my desk, which I can only assume means that we're out of time. Um, Mike, wow, this. This yeah. has been a delight and, and, and an inspiration. Thank you so much for making the time, man. We appreciate it. No, the pleasure is all mine. Thank you guys for the great questions. Oh, outstanding. Oh, absolutely. Brian, I know yeah. your pockets are full of gold, but pull out just one little nugget. What, what, what are you taking away from this conversation? Well, one of the things that, that really hit me was that it's important to constantly give yourself new challenges as a writer yes. and to pay attention to what others do that affects you so that you can explore new facets and challenges and actually grow rather than remain stagnant in our craft. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. That, 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 that's gold right there. I'm, I'm torn between the notion of setting up your world like a set of dominoes that then right. fall and unfold. But, but it, it's got to be, for me, that revision metaphor. That, yeah. for me, that's <laughs> just, it's, that's my biggest issue is, you know, getting, you got to finish something first before you can revise. And, and that revision process is always looming on the horizon. It's, oh, Christ, I got to revise. But no, as an actor, it's just a do-over. It's, I can right. make this better. That's badass. Uh, friends, thank you so much for tuning in and hitting that play button. I, I know <laughs> you're sitting there scrambling. You're, 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 you're being thankful that this is on the web so you can hit the play button over again and jot down notes. And so are we. 
Um, now, now, hang out, because in a couple of days, we're going to have Michael back, uh, and he is going to help workshop an awesome tale of superheroage uh, that is, I'm, I'm almost certain, going to lead to a froth of, of creative mojo unlike any we have seen before. Um, uh, but between now and then, there's a number of things that you can do. Uh, uh, first and foremost, spread the word. Let folks know about the roundtable. Uh, so many of you have delivered some wonderful reviews out on iTunes. Thank you so much. Um, uh, comments on the post are always welcome. If, if you're surfing the web and people are talking about writers podcasts, uh, feel free to throw in a comment and link over to the roundtable. That's a great way to spread the word. And many of you have availed yourself of our email address, thetable at roundtablepodcast.com to share your kind thoughts and appreciation. And we are so grateful for that uh, because that just keeps us going. Um, So there's some things you can do between now and the workshop episode that's going to drop in a couple of days. Brian, any, any other ideas on what they can fill their time with? Well, the most important thing that you can do is go right. I couldn't possibly agree more. You are so right, my friend. Uh, and for myself, guys, you find what you're looking for. It happens time and time again. Uh, and so look for awesome stuff. Look for amazing goodness. And I promise you, it's out there. You'll find it. It's yours for the taking. Uh, so we will see you in just a couple of days. Until then, you guys stay cool. Be good. Be frosty. Be awesome. And we will talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode is copyright 2013 by the Roundtable Podcast and is released under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, share-alike license. That means don't sell it, but you can share it all you like. And you can even use pieces of it in your own derivative work, as long as you attribute us as the source and release the work under the same licensing terms. Theme music composed and performed by the talented Hepcats of Brotown. Gary Gold, David LaBroyere, Billy Nobel, and Matt O'Donnell. If you'd like to be a guest writer or guest host, or learn more about the Roundtable Podcast, please visit our website at www.roundtablepodcast.com or visit our Facebook page at facebook.com slash roundtablepodcast. Our Twitter tag is at writerspodcast, or you can send us an email at thetable at roundtablepodcast.com. Thanks for listening.